0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 2. And I know this is a long chapter, but out of the sign of reverence for God's word, I ask that we all stand as we give our attention to the reading of it. I ask that we not use this time to kind of have our eyes glaze over and gloss over. But as the author of Hebrews continues to remind us to pay more careful attention to the hearing of God's word, because this is how Christ our King governs his church, is through the ministry of that which he has spoken infallibly and without error. First Kings chapter 2. As the time approached for David to die, He ordered his son Solomon, saying, As for me, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong and be a man. And keep your obligation to the Lord your God to walk in his ways, and keep his statutes, commands, ordinances, and decrees. This is written in the law of Moses, so that you will have success in everything you do and wherever you turn and so that the Lord will fulfill his promise that he made to me, saying that if your sons take care to walk faithfully before me with all their heart, with all their soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. You also know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of, the, of Israel's army, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He murdered them in a time of peace, to avenge bloodshed in war. He spilt that blood on his own waistband and on the sandals of his feet. Act according to your wisdom. Do not let his gray head descend to Sheol in peace. Show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table because they supported me when I fled from your brother Absalom. Keep an eye on Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bechurim, who was with you. He uttered malicious curses against me the day I went to Mahanaim, but he came down to meet me at the Jordan River, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will never kill you with the sword. So don't let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man." You know how to deal with him, to bring his gray head down to shale with blood. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. The length of time David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingship was firmly established. Now Adonijah, son of Hagith, came to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. She asked, Do you come peacefully? Peacefully, he replied. Then he asked, May I talk with you? Go ahead, she answered. You know the kingship was mine, he said. All well, Israel expected me to be king, but then the kingship was turned over to my brother, for the Lord gave it to him. So now I have just one request of you. Do not turn me down. She said to him, go on. He replied, please speak to King Solomon since he won't turn you down. Let him give me Abishag the Shunammite as a wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king for you. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him about Adonijah. The king stood up to greet her, bowed to her, sat down on his throne, and had a throne placed for the king's mother. So she sat down at his right hand. She said, I have just one small request of you. Don't turn me down. Go ahead and ask, mother, the king replied, for I won't turn you down. And she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to your brother Adonijah as a wife. King Solomon answered his mother, why are you requesting Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Since he is my elder brother, you might as well ask the kingship for him for the priest Abiathar, and for Joab, son of Zeruiah. And King Solomon took an oath by the Lord, saying, My God, punish me and do severely if Adonijah has not made this request at the cost of his life. Now as the Lord lives, the one who established me and seated me on the throne of my father David and made me a dynasty just as he promised, I swear Adonijah will be put to death today. Then King Solomon dispatched Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, who struck down Adonijah, and he died. The king said to the priest Abiathar, Go to your fields in Anathoth. Even though you deserve to die, I will not put you to death today, since you carried the ark of the Lord God in the presence of David my father, and you suffered through all that my father suffered. So Solomon banished Abiathar from being the Lord's priest, and it fulfilled the Lord's prophecy, just as he had spoken at Shiloh against Eli's family. Then the news reached Joab. Since he had supported Adonijah but not Absalom, Joab fled to the Lord's tabernacle and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was reported to King Solomon that Joab has fled to the Lord's tabernacle and he is now beside the altar. And so Solomon sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and told him, Go and strike him down. so Benaiah went to the tabernacle and said to Joab, This is what the king says. Come out. Joab said, No. I will die here. So Benaiah took a message back to the king. This is what Joab said, and this is how he answered me. The king said to him, do just as he says, strike him down and bury him in order to remove from me and from my father's family the blood that Joab shed without just cause. The Lord will bring back his own blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous, more better than he. Without my father David's knowledge. With his sword, Joab murdered Abner, son of Ner, commander of Israel's army, and Amas, the son of Jether, commander of Judah's army. The responsibility for their deaths will come back to Joab and his descendants forever. But for David, his descendants, his dynasty, and his throne, there will be peace from the Lord forever. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, went up, struck down Joab, and put him to death. He was buried at his house in the wilderness. The king then anointed or appointed Benaiah son of Jehoiada in Joab's place over the army, and he appointed the priest Zadok in Abiathar's place. Then the king summoned Shimei and said to him, Build a house for yourself in Jerusalem and live there. But don't leave there go anywhere else. On the day you do leave and cross the Kidron Valley, know for sure that you will surely die. Your blood will be on your own head. Shimei said to the king, This sentence is fair. Your servant will do just as my lord the king has spoken. Shimei lived in Jerusalem for a long time. But then at the end of three years, two of Shimei's slaves ran away to Achish, son of Macha, king of Gath. Shimei was informed, Look, your slaves are... In Gath. So Shimia saddled his donkey and set out to Achish at Gath to search for his slaves. He went and he brought them back from Gath. And it was reported to Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned. So the king summoned Shimei and said to him, Didn't I make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, that on the day you leave and go anywhere else, know for sure that you will surely die? And you said to me, The sentence is fair, I will obey. So why have you not kept the Lord's oath and the command that I gave you? The king also said, You yourself know all the evil that you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord has brought back your evil on your own head. But King Solomon will be blessed, and David's throne will remain established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in Solomon's hand. Let's go before the Lord now and pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask uh, that you would bless uh, the reading of your word, but especially we ask that you would bless its preaching, uh, that our hearts would turn to you and repent and believe. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Be certain your sins will find you out. Do we honor Christ as holy? Or is he just a means to some other end? Do we truly fear Christ? So often we speak of Christ as our Lord and our King, but do we mean it? Do we treat his commands flippantly? With disregard our passage here begins with a rather stark contrast between that of Solomon and David. Here is the baton is being passed from father to son. If you recall, uh, towards the end of 2 Samuel, we find that ever since David's own affair with Bathsheba, his reign had been one marked by radical indecision, even impotence. This is, in fact, how 1 Kings 1 opens. Depicting towards us the actions of an impotent king, a man who is unable to tell any of his sons no, who is unable to rebuke them, who is unable or at least unwilling to discipline them. I think it's one of the great dangers of sin, isn't it? When we sin, it shatters our moral compass in that particular sin's regard. It sears the heart. It makes us callous to the things of God. How often do we find ourselves with guilty consciences recoiling from speaking against what is wrong because we know that we too have done the same thing? Perhaps worse, perhaps we try to overcompensate for that guilty conscience by judging too harshly those sins and others which we see in ourselves. Where the speck in our eye one day and overnight becomes one giant two by four. Sin renders us morally blind and impotent, incompetent to judge between right and wrong, to act according to wisdom. And towards the end of David's life, that seems to be a picture of the final years of David's reign. David was a great king who had done great good. Here was a king who had loved the Lord, but after his affair, he had become utterly indecisive. And now, as he's about to die, he has left so many loose ends to the point where, as the book of the Kings begins, were it not for God's mercy, it would have cost him the kingdom. You recall from reading uh, chapter 1 of First Kings, David hadn't even announced who his proper successor would be, and it led to chaos and confusion and an attempted mutiny. And yet that first chapter begins with a beautiful picture of redemption as the words of the prophet rouses David from his slumber, as it were, that he might act decisively and declare that the rightful heir to the throne should be Solomon and not Adonijah. And now we begin to see the onset, the inauguration of Solomon's reign and what a stark contrast it is. Here, Solomon has no time to waste. In order to secure the kingdom, he actually must act decisively and in wisdom. And This is the very thing that he does. Acting so decisively, perhaps this chapter makes us feel a tad uncomfortable. There's two parts I'd like us to consider this morning. First, I would like us to consider David's charge to Solomon. We'll see that in the opening 12 verses. And then we will see Solomon's discharge of his duties from verses 13 and following as we consider four or five particular vignettes that illustrate the things that Solomon had to do to secure the peace and stability of the kingdom. So, two parts David's charge and Solomon's discharge of his duties. We come now to a particular critical juncture in the life of the kingdom of Israel. The race now stands like a baton race. Stands or falls with the passing of that baton, the passing down of the mantle, as it were, from David to Solomon, Now, as David approaches death, he passes on the reins to his son. If chapter 1 is about the coronation of the rightful heir, then chapter 2 requires the things that Solomon must do to consolidate and secure the peace of the kingdom. So much rides here on the transition of power from father to son. As we had seen in chapter 1, David has finally regained his royal dignity, much like Theoden in the two towers regained his dignity once warm tongue had been banished. And here we find David's final words echoing the counsel of the saints of old at other critical junctures in salvation history. Think of Israel's last words to David or Moses' words to Joshua. And Joshua's final words to Israel. So David gives similar counsel as he passes on the wisdom he has received on to his own son, The impartation of wisdom, even as David is about to walk the way of the earth, he says, so Solomon is now called to walk in the way of the Lord. He says this, be strong and show yourself a man. The masculinity that is found not in beards or bodybuilding, but in obedience. Solomon is called to walk according to the rules set forth in God's word. It's a full orb walk. Look at the various ways and uh, the, the, the multifaceted character of the way in which David calls Solomon to walk accordingly. The charge, the ways, the statutes, the commandments, the judgments, the testimonies. In other words, what David is communicating is that God's word is to shape every facet of your life, Solomon, from every angle. With a particular promise. That if you do this, you might prosper. So a word play going on here in the Hebrew as that word there for prosper is the same root word that we find there for wisdom. The idea is there's an organic connection as between a tree and its fruit. If you walk in wisdom, you will prosper. You will bear fruit accordingly. In one sense, David is not saying anything different from what every other believing father was charged to pass on to his own children. Remember what's required of every Israelite according to the book of the covenant in Deuteronomy, that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, with all of your strength. And you are to pass this charge down to your very children. When you rise, when you walk along the way, when you eat, when you sleep, something that's still relevant today for fathers, for parents, as we instruct our children to walk in the fear of the Lord. But even as David gives these general commands in verses 5 and following, he begins to specify the nature of this charge as it now applies to Solomon, who holds a unique position in the kingdom, as Solomon is the one who wears the crown. Solomon is the representative of the nation. He is the one who is to lead by example. And as the rest of the books of the kings will make very clear, the nation will follow in the example that is set forth by her leadership. The nation will follow the spiritual maturity or immaturity of her kings. So David enjoins to Solomon very specific instructions these loose ends that he must tie up in order to secure the peace of the kingdom. And recall, this is not simply just another kingdom on the geopolitical map of the ancient Near East. This is the kingdom through which the Messiah will come. In one sense, the kingdom stands or falls with how Solomon will respond to the charge that is given to him. And so David charges his son to come in judgment against Joab and Shimei. You see that there in verse 6. Against Joab, whose treachery had incurred blood guilt on David's house. Against Shimei, who had cursed David's house. These are guilts, these are curses that now hang over David's dynasty and they must be reckoned with. It's not the only charge that David gives to Solomon. Not only is Solomon as the great king to come in judgment against his enemies, he is also to come in mercy towards his friends. As he comes in grace to bless the friends of the kingdom, to cause the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, to sit and eat at the king's table for the rest of their days. Both are needed for the kingdom to be established in peace, both justice and mercy. And yet, as this chapter continues, we find that this is not all that Solomon has to deal and contend with. That's why David tells him to walk according to your wisdom. Two times, in fact, he reminds him, you are wise. We haven't even made it to chapter 3 yet, where where Solomon recognizes that he needs even more wisdom than he already has. David says, you must walk according to your wisdom. And as soon as David dies, we find that Solomon's older brother, Adonijah, once again tries to take control of the throne. Again, as a reminder, chapter 1 was all about the attempt at mutiny by his older brother, Adonijah, who claimed that the throne belonged to him and not to his brother, Solomon. We remember how Solomon himself had spared his brother at the end of this failed mutiny. Think about it. Adonijah is caught red-handed. He stands before his brother. Adonijah confesses that Solomon is the true king. And Solomon says, says, if you are a worthy man, then you will have life. I am showing you mercy. But if you prove yourself to be evil, then death awaits. Well, here we find whether or not Adonijah is a worthy man or not. David is now dead. You can almost hear the hiss of the serpent from Adonijah's voice as he now tries to take the throne for himself, this time in an even more subtle way. He enters the throne room to speak with not his mother, but to speak with Solomon's mother. Adonijah says, the kingdom was mine. The people wanted it. But delusions of grandeur. You read chapter one, you realize it's not really the case. Adonijah seems to have already known that the kingdom belonged to Solomon. Why else would he not invite Solomon to his own coronation party? Why else would Adonijah try to have himself crowned king under cover of darkness, under the the, the auspices of the serpent's stone? If the city really wanted Adonijah to be crowned king, then why is it that when Solomon is crowned that the whole nation erupts with such joy and merriment that it is said to have split the earth? Adonijah has a bigger sense of self-worth than the truth really allows. His ego is writing checks that his body can't write. Adonijah here is being portrayed as a second Absalom. Remember the mindset of the ancient world that I think this is key to understanding what's going on. The one who controls the harem controls the kingdom. And at the head of David's own harem, something you shouldn't have had by the way, was Abishag the Shunammite, the most beautiful girl in all of Israel. So you recall from chapter one. If you recall, during Absalom's war against David and Second Samuel, Absalom had taken uh, the chief concubine and had his way with her on, on in front of the, the, the gazing public as a sign of open rebellion against his father, a sign that he was claiming the throne and the power of the throne for himself. Now Adonijah is trying the same tactic, yet he is trying to do so much more subtly. If the man who controls the harem has some type of claim to the imperial throne, then Adonijah thinks that if he can be given David's chief concubine as his wife, then he can lay claim to the throne as well. That's certainly how Solomon sees it. It's certainly what Adonijah was up to. Of course, he asked Bathsheba. Bathsheba seems somewhat oblivious to what it is that is going on. He says, yeah. I'll take your request to the king and I'll ask him. Though the woman is oblivious to the serpent's hiss, Solomon is not. He sees the deception for what it is. (laughs) That's why he asks his mother, he says, look, why don't you just give the throne to Adonijah while you're at it? Not not only that, why don't you just go ahead and give the throne to the co-conspirators as well, to those who joined him in the mutiny, to Abiathar, to Joab, Why not? That's the very thing he's asking for, isn't it? So now he summons Abiathar for certain and final judgment. Here's a man who has spit in the face of the king's mercy. He has used the pardon as an excuse to continue in the same sins that he'd already stood guilty of before. The kingdom cannot be at peace until the king's enemies are all put to the ground. The same goes for Solomon's own brother. Again, what a contrast with David. David, who was unable to tell his own family members no, even as they rebelled against him openly. Now we see Solomon's own brother trying the same thing, secretly to do so. And Solomon says, not on my watch. As it were, there's a new sheriff in town. is put to death. I'm sorry, Adonijah is put to death. And now Solomon begins the task of addressing the co-conspirators of the prior mutiny, Abiathar, the high priest. If you recall, Abiathar in his own lineage, he comes from the house of Eli. And if you recall the opening chapters of Eli, we read of what a, a, a corrupt family this is. Where the Lord himself vowed that he will work in his own providence to extirpate From the priesthood, the family of Eli, and here is the last surviving member of Eli's house. Notice how Solomon treats him. He puts him, as it were, under house arrest. He says, look, uh, you are no longer to be priest. But Solomon also says, I'm not going to put you to death because of the good things that you have done. Nevertheless, the judgment stands firm. I'm giving you a chance, Abiathar. Use it wisely. If you disobey me, you will surely die. Abiathar deserved death immediately, and yet Solomon, in his mercy, in an act of tough love, puts him under house arrest, telling him he can still live so long as he remains obedient, but he can never again serve as priest. Here we find the prerogative of the king stands to show mercy to whom he wills. And yet at the same time, Solomon's actions we find are guided by the prophetic word because isn't it the word of the prophet that had already spoken saying that this would be the fate of the house of Eli? Verses uh, 28 to 35, we see Solomon moving on to yet another one of the conspirators, that of Joab. Again, David may have been indecisive, but not Solomon. Joab knows that his life is in danger, if you recall. Uh, Joab was as it were, David's right-hand man, the commander of David's army. And yet, even in a time of peace, Joab violated the rules of engagement. When there was not war, he killed two generals without the king's knowledge and in time of peace. Thus incurring bringing blood guilt upon David's dynasty. It slayed Abner in an act of personal vengeance. And he was the one who had executed Absalom against David's wishes. Now he had killed the new general Amasa out of jealousy. If you look at verse 5, what's striking is what Solomon says. It's not that Joab has blood on his armor, but blood on his belt and shoes. In other words, what... Joab was doing was not in his capacity as a military officer. He was using that as a cloak for carrying out personal vendettas. He acted as a representative of the throne and yet incurred blood guilt on the throne. And when you read Exodus 21, according to the law of Moses, it prescribed a place of refuge for murders. However, According to the law of Moses, the place of refuge is only prescribed for unintentional murders, for manslaughter. What Joab had done was not unintentional. It was, in modern parlance, first-degree murder. Listen to the words of Exodus 21. If a man willfully attacks another man to kill him by cunning, you shall take him even from my altar, that he may die. In other words, according to the law of Moses, there is no place of refuge for first-degree murder. And Solomon, we find, acting according to wisdom. Remember what David's charge to Solomon was? To walk in all the ways of God, just as he has spoken all of his ordinances, commands, and statutes. We find David here acting according to the wisdom and the law of Moses. Here's a man who knows he has done wrong, Joab, and now he goes and he flees to the place of refuge hoping that he will find safety, that he will be pardoned. And yet, the law of Moses is very specific on this point under the Old Covenant. That the, Not even the, the tabernacle, not even the temple can be used as a place from refuge in this particular event. And so he has Beniah remove him from the tabernacle Slay him. Be certain your sins will find you out. It had been years since Job had murdered these men. Matthew Henry, commenting on this particular passage, puts it like this: This time does not wear out the guilt of any sin. Uh, the, The freshness of old sins may no longer haunt us, but the guilt may be no less real. It's an application I think is relevant for us all. There is a day of reckoning that will come as the gospel calls us to repent before it is too late. So Solomon replaces Joab with Beniah, the son of uh, uh, Jehuadah. I've <laughs> I forgotten his name already. Anyways, Beniah, and he replaces Abiathar with Zadok. jehoiada that's who it was. In other words, Solomon has removed the treacherous leadership and have put in their place godly leaders, faithful men who will execute the king's decrees in subjection to two things, the law of Moses and the word of the prophet. Solomon is acting in wisdom to secure a kingdom that peace may abound, and there cannot be peace without righteousness. And here is a king who is acting in righteousness, showing mercy, and yet also showing justice. final test case, of course, is that of Shimei. You see that there in verses 36 to 46. If you recall from 2 Samuel, Shimei was one of Saul's relatives, a man who was bitter that David had been given the kingdom, that the kingdom had been wrested from his cousin's hands, as it were. During the war against Absalom, Shimei had pronounced a curse on David's house. When David had defeated Absalom, Shimei begged for his life. But it seems as though Shimei's attitude had not changed even though he had been pardoned by the king. Solomon puts Shimei to the test. He begins to test his heart and to examine it, whether or not there has been, in fact, true repentance from his old and accursed ways. Just as he had put Abiathar under house arrest, and it seems that Abiathar had been obedient and his life had been spared, so Solomon now puts Shimei under house arrest. Shimei actually says, this is a very fair sentence. I agree to the terms. He doesn't say, oh, this is unjust. No, Shimei says, no, this is just. What you are saying is right, O king. And he's obedient until it proves inconvenient. A couple years pass and the incident exposes his heart as Chimier disregards the law of the king and the very vow that he had made before his king and his maker. Here's a man who does not fear the king. Here's a man who fails to take the king's commands seriously. Here's a man who fails to take his own oaths seriously. Here's a man who only submits when it is convenient, nothing more. Verse 44 quite literally says something like this from the mouth of Solomon. You yourself have known all the evil which your heart has known. In other words, you have indulged in the depth of your depravity and your pursuit of evil. You've never truly repented from your heart. You've not acted unwittingly here. You know what you're doing. And here the king tests the hearts prove whether or not, and determine whether or not this man is worthy of death or worthy of life. Solomon has tried Shimei, he has given him a chance, and he has found him too to be a worthless man. The kingdom cannot be at peace so long as the man who has cursed David's line lives. He must be put to death. It's a tough chapter, isn't it? Over and over again, we're reminded of the judgment of the king as he acts righteously and decisively. I think the spotlight now turns on our own hearts. Your Proverbs says this, Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. It's the very thing that Solomon does. Internal threats to the kingdom, there's the threat to the throne that comes from Adonijah. There is the sanctity of the priesthood regarding the office, uh, the, the person of Abiathar who had occupied that place of office. There's the peace of the kingdom that's found in Joab, a man who is uh, using his position to execute personal vendettas. And then there's the nature of the blessing or the cursing against the kingdom. All these men, had to be reckoned with. Solomon acts according to wisdom in establishing the kingdom. He acts according to the word of his father David the king, and he acts according to the word of the prophet Moses. And so Solomon comes in judgment that he might secure the kingdom's peace. He destroys his enemies as a means and not as an end in itself. Any threat to the peace of the kingdom comes in the king's crosshairs. And here Solomon achieves peace and rest. That the friends of the king might enjoy the peace of the kingdom and sit at his table. It's so easy to gloss over the other charge that David had given his son in verses 6 and 7. As you recall that during the war against Absalom, there was an 80-year-old man by the name of Barzillai, the Gileadite. Who had taken David in as he was fleeing for his life, and he fed him and he clothed him. And now, Barzillai had died. Old age. Second Samuel tells us. Peacefully in the land of his fathers. David remembers the friends of the kingdom. David remembers the kindness that Barzillai had shown to him. And he now tells Solomon, it's not that you're supposed to be a bloodthirsty king coming in cold-hearted vengeance or vindictiveness. Show mercy to Barzillai's sons, that for the rest of their days they sit and eat at the same table with you. David desires that his sons be blessed for the rest of their days. Now we see that in the discharge of Solomon's office, King Solomon depicts for us Christ in His exaltation, who rules in wisdom, who rules in majesty, who rules in mercy, and who also rules. Injustice. Christ is king, and as king, he has a kingdom with its own laws, its own office bearers, its own judgments. And that kingdom on earth subsists in the life of the church. So it's pointed application for us today as we think, do we actually fear Christ as king? Do we take Christ's commands seriously? Or do we simply treat church-going as some type of lucky rabbit's foot? to continue indulging in pet sins, and to alleviate the guilty conscience thinking, I am safe, no harm will be found, become me, become of me. Do we fear the Christ as king, or do we like Adonijah presume, presume upon his mercy? Solomon had shown mercy to Abiathar and Shimei. One submitted to his lordship, the other scoffed at it, and was found out. Christ has come in mercy to us. That grace is not given that we might continue to revel in pet sins. It's one of the messages of Hebrews. Six times we're given these warnings. If it was true under the Old Testament, how much more certain is it true under the New Covenant? If what was spoken by the words of angels uh, was true, how much more now that God has spoken in one who is greater than the angels? the Lord Jesus Christ. In one sense, this is a very sobering passage. The justice that the king displays here is a firm justice. It is not, uh, to use the phrase of one of my old pastors, that of sloppy agape. But that firm justice that is given is also a merciful justice. Because the author of Hebrews and the psalmist, David himself, tells us over and over again that the offer of amnesty still stands and extends for the people of God. So long as it is still called today. When we think about our sins that we delight in and we have no desire to let go and repudiate, how many of us try to think, well, Lord, give me give me continence, just not quite yet? Give me patience, but not quite yet. Give me contentment, but not yet. Give me just another three months, another three years. Let me just graduate. High school first. Let me just graduate college first. Let me just retire first. And then I'll serve you. And the scriptures say why it's still called today. Today is the only thing that's promised. It's sobering. It's called, it's intended to rouse us from our sins and our complacency. But it's also not intended to leave us to despair. Because the promise stands whosoever will may come. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. The Encouragement is, turn to Christ. Don't delay. As we sang at the beginning of the service, while he offers peace and pardon, let us hear his voice today, lest if not, we perish in the way. Will you heed his voice and turn to him, him who is alone the fount of every blessing? Will you heed the voice of him who beckons us to come and feast at his table? Or will you scoff and so trample the blood of Christ underfoot and so be found without mercy on the last day? Seek the Lord while he may be found, for with him there is forgiveness that he may be feared. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that uh, the fire of your word would burn in our hearts, that the light of your word would expose those uh, areas of our hearts that are still in rebellion against you. Be merciful, merciful to us today and kind, we pray, but give us the vigilance and the diligence to repent of our sin as you reveal our sins to us, that we might turn from them and cling to Christ, who is alone our only hope and comfort in life and in death. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here we are reminded of what our sin actually cost. Paul tells us in his letter to the church of Rome that the wages of sin is death. That is the paycheck that is due each and every one of us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what God's law declares. This is how Solomon in his justice acted according to the law of Moses for those who acted unrighteously. But now in the gospel we are reminded that there is a righteousness that comes apart from the law. A righteousness that can only be received by faith. And as you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that the provision for our sins have been dealt with, have been Uh, provided for, have been secured at the cross of Christ. That Christ, though He was sinless, was condemned as a sinner, bearing our sins so that we might not receive the justice that is rightfully due us. That we might receive the mercy of God and drink from the oceans of His grace. This does not mean we are to treat the Lord's Supper or the offer of pur- free forgiveness of sins as that lucky rabbit's foot, as a talisman to keep indulging in sins. Our Shorter Catechism speaks of that the one of the purposes of the Supper is to rouse our hearts unto a new obedience, to remind ourselves the seriousness of sin, not that we might continue to love sin, but that we might love the One who has sent His Son to deliver us from the penalty of sin. And that is what these elements communicate to us and signify before us. The bread and the cup signify the body and blood of Christ shed for sinners like you and me, so that we might come and like the sons of Barzillai feast at the king's table all of our days. That is the good news of the Gospel. That we have a king who is a friend of sinners, who is ever kind, who is ever merciful, so long as it is still called today, that offer of amnesty still stands. Where your sins will not only be pardoned, but you will be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ himself. If you have not yet put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you to speak with myself or one of the elders or deacons following the service, and we're happy to talk with you more about what it means to trust in Christ, Christ who reigns above as our prophet, priest, and king. And if you are indulging in secret sins with no desire to amend your ways, I have to offer this warning. Because Paul says those who partake unworthily will eat and drink judgment upon themselves. This is not encouragement to simply let the elements pass you by so you can continue indulging in secret sins. Let this serve as a warning that your very soul is at stake if you think that your sin is no big deal. If you are under discipline of the church, I ask that you refrain, that you might consider what repentance consists in and what real communion with God looks like. That here is one who feeds us and nourishes us with his very body and blood. That said, there are so many of us who struggle with guilt over sins, even over the past week, even over this morning, thinking, I failed again. Will the hammer fall this time? Remember and cling to God's promise while it is still called today. Here is a God who is the fountain of every grace. Here is the God who beckons sinners to come near to the throne of grace to find comfort and pardon when we need that. And we most certainly need that. So I encourage us to come, not flippantly, but to come boldly, clinging to Christ, who is our grace, who is our deliverer. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your table, that we would taste and see that you are good. We pray that you would, in convicting us of our sin, not leave us in the lurch, but that you would raise us from the miry depths to look and behold Christ in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, and in all of his mercy. That we might walk in your ways all of our days. And so learn what true justice and true mercy truly looks like. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.